Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Lord's Prayer includes the phrase, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Just as Christ has generously forgiven, so are we to be generous and forgiving. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Rooted, a lifestyle of radical dependence with this sermon entitled Rooted in Forgiveness and Generosity, which covers Luke chapter 19 and Genesis chapter 45. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thank you. Uh, we, we pray this each week, Lord, and, and we, we just want to always say thank you, Father, for the privilege it is to come before you, to gather corporately as your body, uh, to be in this place, and to open your word. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would speak to us. What an incredible honor and joy it is for us to open the living word of God and have you, the God of the universe, speak to us. So Lord, would you indeed soften our hearts? Father, as we sang earlier that you have the power to melt the heart of stone. And so Lord, for those in the room this morning, would you melt hearts of stone? And would you do what only you can do? So, Lord, we give this time to you. We ask your blessings over it, and would you do it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're in the sixth week out of seven weeks of a series that we're calling Rooted, a lifestyle of radical dependence. And as we've walked through prayer and repentance and self-denial and sacrifice and obedience, and then last week, discipleship, all of these things that we have hit on are super biblical. They're all critical to the life of what it means to be a believer, to be rooted in these things, all under the, uh, the greenhouse, if you will, of God's word that causes us to flourish as God's people, following him, embracing his truths, living in light of his grace in our lives. This morning, where we're headed this morning, uh, might perhaps be the most important one yet because it gets straight to the core of the essence of the gospel and the implications of the gospel in our lives as it pertains to forgiveness and generosity. A few years ago, I was struck by something that when it first came out in the news, we were all struck by it. And it was the event that happened on June 17th, 2015 when a young man by the name of Dylan Roof walked into a Emmanuel AME church in Charleston, South Carolina. He was invited in by these believers in Jesus who were conducting a Bible study and they invited him in to sit with him and he sat with them for 45 minutes as they studied the word together and invited him to do the same. And with evil in his heart, he had planned from the very beginning to do something unthinkable, and he carried it out after those 45 minutes. He pulled out a gun, and by the end of his rampage, nine people were killed. But that's not the story. The story actually happened two days later. 
Two days later, June 19th, 2015, the loved ones of those who had, had died gathered in a courtroom. And with Dylan Roof on a video screen looking straight at them, they were able to look directly into his eyes and they did something profound. They forgave him. It's, it's unthinkable what they did. Two days later, it's not like that they had had plenty of time to begin to, uh, to heal and get over this and think about, hey, we should probably extend forgiveness as followers of Christ. It was instinctual within them to extend forgiveness to one that we would all say, should he get forgiveness? The first family member stood up and through tears said, I just want everyone to know and to you, turning to Ruth, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never be able to talk to her again. I will no, never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you. I forgive you. That would be unthinkable enough if it just ended with her, but then right behind her, another family member of another victim stands up and comes to the mic and says, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change you. He can change your ways no matter what has happened to you. Do that and you will be better off than you are now. Yet another loved one of a victim comes forward and says, I'm a work in progress and I acknowledge I am very angry, but we are a family that love has built. We have no room for hate, so we forgive. And I pray that God will have mercy on your soul. On your soul. And it just kept going from there. You may remember this in the news. It was all over the news. We've had a similar situation recently with the brother of... Botham Jean, who forgave his killer in a dramatic fashion in the, in the courtroom. And, and here's the point. Point is this. Either these people are crazy or they are filled with something that is uncommonly unique. Or maybe let me say it another way. Either they're crazy or they are filled with someone unique and uncommon that the world knows nothing of. Because here's what's natural to you and me. Here's what's natural to mankind. We don't want to naturally extend forgiveness. If you're like me, the reason I know this to be true and I'm hoping you identify with me is I didn't necessarily, I thought it was so powerful that these family members were extending forgiveness to these men who had committed, committed such atrocities, but deep within me, I wanted them to experience the pain and anguish that they deserved. I wanted them to get justice in and, and, and ways they, they will. And certainly God is a God of justice and he will pour out his justice. The, the foundation of his throne, Psalm 97, is righteousness and justice. And we are to be agents of that justice. But uh, sometimes me, I'll just be honest, I want to be all about justice and never about forgiveness. 
Because I begin to believe the lie oftentimes, the subtle little lie that creeps in to have major implications in my life, that I believe that I am more deserving of God's forgiveness than someone else that I deem to be more reprehensible than me. And the scriptures say, that's just not true. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we are all by nature children of wrath. We struggle to extend forgiveness. And even though forgiveness is far, naturally far from our hearts, apart from the grace and the work of God in us through Jesus, it's never been far from God's heart. You go back to the, to the scriptures, even into the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament and into the New, we see the heart of God so focused on mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Listen to what it says in Psalm 103. It says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He's speaking to the people of God here, the followers of God to say, uh, there's a Messiah who's coming. This is written before Jesus showed up, who will shoulder the sins of his people upon him so that God doesn't have to pour out his wrath and his justice upon us. He will pour out his justice and his wrath upon his son, the only one who never deserved it, so that he can pour out his love and his forgiveness on us, his people. Micah 7, 18 says this, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Who is a God like our God? The answer is no one. The way that God extends forgiveness to his people is overwhelming. The way that he is full of grace, centered on steadfast love, it's something that stirs us as followers of him, to be like him. He is making us more every day, if you're a follower of Jesus, into his image, which means that as ones who have experienced and received uncommon forgiveness, radical, if you will, forgiveness, we become a people. We become a people who then are radically forgiving others. But it doesn't end there. We don't just radically forgive others. We give. Really, forgiveness, in a sense, is giving. It's in, the, it's in the word. It's an act of generosity in and of itself. But those who have been forgiven much give much. I want to show you in the scriptures this morning, one, a story from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament. I want to give you two very common stories, ones that we have seen, even if you haven't been uh, church, even if you haven't been in or around church, you know that uh, these are stories that you've probably at least heard their names and know, oh yeah, these are popular Bible stories. And so I know that they're going to be familiar to many of you, uh, but I want to ask that your prayer even now would be, God, uh, I don't want this just to be familiar in a way that I check out, but fresh in a way that I hear something perhaps uh, that I haven't heard from you before in these stories. 
So the first one I want us to go to is found in Luke chapter 19, where we're looking first at a story in the New Testament of one who received forgiveness from Jesus and the immediate implications upon his life were significant. Look at verse one, chapter 19, verse one with me. It says this, this is the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. He being Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Let me pause and just make a comment here. Uh, if you're a first century Jewish reader and you just read those words, immediately within you, you felt you would feel similar things perhaps to how you and I felt about Dylan Roof or someone who has committed great offense towards others. Tax collectors were hated by Jews because they saw them as ones who were uh, the ones who would be uh, traitors in a sense. The ones who would be those who uh, are Jewish people, but yet they take Jewish money and give it to the Roman government. And perhaps many times it was commonly known that tax collectors in selfishness would pocket some of the money for themselves as well. And that's how they even got richer. And so uh, Jewish people saw these individuals as reprehensible. They saw them as, as evil, that you, would give, that you would take our money and give it to our oppressors. Are you serious? And then did you notice Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. I love this about Jesus. Jesus has already called one tax collector to himself, Matthew. Matthew is one of his followers, his disciples. And if that weren't offensive enough to the religious elite, to the religious people around him, uh, now he is moving towards not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And the religious people are, are disgusted. How dare he? So watch what happens. He was seeking, this is Zacchaeus, he, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. This is where the wee little man song comes into your head. And, and I just want to point out, um, if Zacchaeus was short in that day and age, he was really short because studies have been done. I don't know how they've figured this stuff out. I guess they look at skeletons. I'm not sure. But studies have been done that the average man in first century Palestine was somewhere around 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, okay, we didn't start growing as tall as we are now until we started eating tons of meat filled with antibiotics and steroids. But anyway. <laughs> so if, if he can't see over the crowd, brother was, he was short. But look at his eagerness. He's so intrigued by this Jesus. Don't you know that there's so much at play in the story of Zacchaeus that we're not told about here? Perhaps even that he knows, he knows so deeply there's one who is coming. Maybe this is him. Maybe this is, maybe this is the long promised Messiah and I just can't stop doing what I'm doing. I know that everyone hates me and I know that I'm not what I should be. And, and maybe this is the one who can change me. And so I'm so eager that I'm, I'm going to, 
I'm going to lose my reputation and what little bit of it that I have, but I just, men don't climb trees in that day, okay? And he's going to climb a tree so that he can see Jesus. Jesus walks up to him. Verse five, and when Jesus came, or sorry, verse four, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I love that Jesus invites himself over. I think that's great. Hey, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus is like, all right. Look what it says that Zacchaeus does. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. There is such a bliss and joy in the heart of a sinner who meets Jesus. Someone who knows that they are sinful. Do you notice who's distance, who is distant in this story? We'll see it in the very next verse. Verse seven, and when they saw it, they are the religious the religious elite, the Pharisees, the ones who think they have it all together and that God is very pleased with them. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, as though they're not sinners. Between that verse and verse eight, a lot happens. We have to remember that when Biblical writers are telling us stories, oftentimes, especially in the Gospels, they're, they're just giving us the 30,000-foot view. They're not telling us every detail of the conversation. Because between verse 7 and verse 8, there's been a walk to the house. There's been a dinner that has happened in the midst of other guests. And Jesus, uh, I think it's very safe to assume that in this conversation and in this time that has occurred, that Jesus has had some good conversations with Zacchaeus in which he has presented himself as who he is, the Messiah, the, the Savior, the rescuer of those who are sinful, the forgiver of sins. And Zacchaeus has embraced him by faith. He has trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he has declared in front of all, this is my God. He is the one. And look what the result of that is. Heart transformation has come to be in Zacchaeus' heart. In verse 8, it says this, And Zacchaeus stood, this is at the table, after dinner, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Lord. He's not just talking to Jesus as one who saves from sins, but who, one who saves from sins, and then we follow. Lordship. Savior and Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is saying this is obviously clearly the fruit of one who has been saved. This is the fruit of one who has been forgiven. That the instinct in Zacchaeus' heart was immediately one who has been forgiven much gives much. 
And, and he gives over and above even what the law required. You see what it said there? It says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's, that's, that's crazy talk, okay? Like the people at the table would have been like, this, this guy's lost his mind because if you go back and you read the law that God had given his people in Leviticus six, it says this, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him who it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. In other words, give back what you realize that you have taken wrongfully and then add a fifth to it. Interest of, of a fifth there, okay? And then it says again in Numbers 5, 7, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it. Again, in Exodus chapter 22, there's actually some instances where, this, where the law says to give double what you owe, to, to pay back and then double it. But here's Zacchaeus, so moved by the forgiveness of Jesus in him, so transformed by the presence of Jesus before him. He says, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. That's where I'm going to start. And then on top of that, if I've wronged anyone, fourfold, not a fifth, not a double, Fourfold. Why? Because those who have been forgiven much, who are radically forgiven through the blood of Jesus, are a people through him in us who forgive and give much. Jesus does something in us that causes us to be uncommonly generous because of his forgiveness. I want to show you a second story, another common story, another familiar story in the Bible. And it's the story of Joseph found in Genesis 45, really chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis. But I want to zoom in on chapter 45. And if you're familiar, if you remember the story of Joseph, I'll recap it very briefly for you. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the faith, the Israelites of God's people in the Old Testament. Jacob played favorites, and Joseph was his favorite. Don't model Jacob. Jacob was not a good parent in that sense, okay? He was sinful in that. But Joseph was his favorite, and his brothers hated him for it. I mean, the scripture says in Genesis 37, it says three different times, and they hated him. And so they sought to kill him so that they wouldn't have to deal with him anymore because Joseph was having these dreams from God about how he was going to be great one day and his brothers were going to bow down to him. And they were like, we're already sick of you enough because our father loves you more than he loves us. Now you're telling us that you're going to rule over us. Okay, we're done with you. And so they concoct a plan to kill him. But by God's grace, they don't kill him. They end up doing something almost as bad. They sell him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt as a slave. And over the course of many years of ups and downs, uh, and many times being getting the favor of, of the rulers in Egypt and then many times being forgotten. Eventually, God raises Joseph to be second in command of all of Egypt and really, in, in many ways, running the kingdom. Pharaoh was more of a figurehead. Joseph was the one who ran the kingdom and ruled over it all. And so, sure enough, his dreams were true. They were from God, and there was a famine in the land. And because he knew it, he had led the Egyptian people to save up food. And so here come his brothers from Canaan, starving, 
knowing that Egypt has food, but they don't recognize Joseph. They find themselves standing before Joseph, but Joseph now is Egyptian. He has the Egyptian garb on. He has the eye paint on. They don't recognize him, but of course, Joseph recognizes his brothers. And so he has his chance. Retaliation is just right there before him. Don't you know when you're reading the story for the very first time, you're like, what's he going to do? Oh man, this is so good. He's going to pay them back and they're going to get what they deserve. And, and, and you're even thinking, if you're not familiar with the story, what you would do, what would I do to them? They sold me into slavery. They were, mm, justice is mine. And there before his brothers, he reveals himself to them and he weeps. And they are convinced as they see, oh my goodness, this is our brother. They are convinced that he's going to kill him. And he had every right and every power to do so. But he forgives him. But don't miss this. Do not miss this. He doesn't just forgive them and dismiss them. He doesn't just forgive them and tolerate them saying, hey, you can be servants in my court. He forgives them and then he gives, extraordinarily gives to them. Look what the text says, chapter 45 Verse 10, he's speaking to his brothers and he says to them, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds and all that you have there, I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Goshen was the most fertile land in Egypt. These brothers who so wronged Joseph, he is saying, I forgive you, and I am not only going to forgive you, I'm going to give you a fertile land so that all of my people can come and dwell there and flourish. And I'm going to give you everything that you need to flourish in that place. And so he says, go back, get my father Get everyone, all over, probably over a hundred people in Joseph's family by this time with all the wives and the kids. And he says, bring them down for this is where you're going to dwell now. Not in a land of famine, but in a land of flourishing. This is what the heart of God looks like. As he sends them back, verse 21, he says, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Uh, the point is this, Joseph was lavish in his generosity. Why? Because he was near to the heart of his God and God is lavish in his forgiveness, and in his generosity towards us. Did, do you see the parallels of the story, by the way? Joseph is, is a foreshadowing of a greater rescuer to come. 
one who would come 2,000, about 2,000 years after Joseph. But the story of Joseph is pointing to the one who would come. And do you, do you remember what happened in the story of Joseph? Joseph got something he didn't deserve. And he had every right then to turn it back on his brothers and say, you gave me something I didn't deserve. I'm going to give you something you do deserve. Your evil is going to be repaid with my wrath. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus would come and do. Those many years later where upon him will be placed something that he never deserved. He's the only one who ever fought, walked the face of the earth and didn't deserve the wrath of sin. And yet he comes and he says, at the hands of evil men, I'm gonna take upon me something I don't deserve. And I have every right then to turn to you and say, I'm gonna give you what you do deserve, the wrath of God upon your head because of your sin. But instead, grace. Instead, forgiveness of sins. And I'm not just going to forgive you and dismiss you. And I'm not going to just forgive you and tolerate you and say, you can be unworthy servants in my, in my court, but I'm going to forgive you. And then I'm going to give you a place to dwell where you will flourish. And on this side of heaven, that place is called the church. And once I come again, that place is called the new heavens and the new earth. And I will give you everything that you need in this life and the next to flourish in a place that I have made you for. And did you catch it in the text? Joseph said to his brothers, so that you will be near me. And that's what Jesus says is I am rescuing you not to forgive and tolerate, not to forgive and dismiss, but so that you will be mine. And as one who is close to the heart of our Jesus, we begin to operate through his power within us in the same way that he operates towards us. We are a people who are uncommonly forgiving and radically generous. Because when we have encountered Jesus in his gospel of grace that forgives us at a level that we can never fully grasp, we are then fueled to be a people who live the way that he has called us to live through his power within us. So we're embarking together on a week here where we get a chance to go before the Lord and say, God, help me remember the magnitude of how much I've been forgiven. Flood me with your gospel remembrance to remember what you have done for me. And God, may that fuel me to embrace a lifestyle of generosity, perhaps that I never have before. To go open-handed before the Lord in a posture of radical dependence to say, God, how would you have me give? As one who has been forgiven much, Lord, make me one who gives much. Make me like Joseph, better yet, make me like Jesus. It's an incredible opportunity we have, not just for this week and in this season that we're in, but for the rest of our lives. What kind of people are we going to be as followers of Jesus? May we be people 
who have been forgiven much, forgive much and give much. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time together to to open your word and to be in your presence, Lord, we pray and ask that you will take what you have shared with us this morning, press it deep into our hearts. Whatever is from you, may it sink deeply in. Whatever is not from you, may it be forgotten quickly. But Lord, we are here because you have been a tremendously lavish God towards us. You have lavished your love upon us, your grace, your forgiveness, your kindness, your mercy. You have been beyond any definition of generosity towards us. You are a generous God. And so, Father, make us a generous people. By your grace within us, at work within us, Lord, have your way. Do what only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.